You're listening to the M2 podcast featuring one of our speakers from the M2 Summit, 3rd of November 2020, brought to you by Yukiwi Natural Oral Care, Woodford Reserve, and Lease Plan. All right, our next guest is going to help us a little bit more with that distinction between the New Zealand and the US thing. And I'm going to have to breathe my way through this bio because there's a lot going on. Often described as a world-class technology leader, our next guest jumped into computers at a young age as they first started to become a thing in New Zealand. In the late 90s, he, he co-founded Virtually Unlimited Corp, a game technology company which licensed game tech to game developers. He then moved to Microsoft Studios for almost 15 years where he had different roles from developer to CTO to studio head. He then moved to Nike for six years where he drove new levels of consumer digital technology. But now we've got him back in the country as CTO of Plexure, which speaking of world class is an amazing New Zealand company going gangbusters globally. Please welcome to the stage, Andrew Flavel, representing Tokoroa. Thank you. How does it feel to be back? Uh, still settling in. I mean, it's a year or so, I guess, now since I've been back. Um, doesn't feel like home yet. Really? No. Uh, but it's, it's uh, definitely changed a lot in 30 years, mm. which I guess you'd expect. Can you, st can you start painting a picture of those two New Zealands? So the yeah. New Zealand that you left 30 years ago and the one that you've come back to, which is maybe not feeling like home yet, but will soon. Yeah. Um, where to start? So uh, I left in 1991, um, went straight to Japan. Um, I, Auckland was a lot smaller. Um, I think uh, the neighbourhoods were less diverse, which, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, was interesting, and no, no real mass high-rises in Auckland for accommodation. It was still everything was spread out. Uh, traffic was still really bad in Auckland. Um, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess you know, one of the reasons I left the country was and I think this has definitely changed now, there, there didn't seem to be a lot of opportunities to really um, do interesting things with technology at the time. Mm. So I went to Japan. Yeah, well, if we, if we take a couple of steps back even more, like the, the, you know, the bridge from Tokoro to Silicon Valley, like it doesn't, even today, <laughs> and, and I'm not bagging Tokoro because yeah. it's, cool, it's a really cool community, but it just doesn't seem like a clear pathway. Could it, at what point did it become yeah, um, I, I view my career more as a random walk, um, <laughs> but it really has always been around technology, right? So at an early age, um, I got exposed to computers through our, our local GP. He'd built an 8-bit CPM-based machine. Um, and then just through electronics as well, I'd get little electronics kits and build them. Um, and so I had this passion for technology, um, and although I took some different directions, um, there was always that, hey, I want to do and do do cool stuff with technology, I want to build cool stuff with technology. Um, and for many years, I was purely focused around how I could apply technology to solve problems. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, from Tokoroa to the Navy, back to school at Auckland, to a scholarship to go to Japan, to Silicon Valley, because my wife wanted to move to Silicon Valley, so I had a chance to do a startup there, then to be recruited to Microsoft to work on games and Xbox. Um, it really was all about just my desire to immerse myself in technology and do cool stuff with it. 
Did you, have, did you have a sense at all, like when you're playing around with CPM, the forgotten operating system, by the way, but when you're, um, when you're, when you're starting to play with that, like, did you have any sense that this, this technology would form the foundation of stuff that is like, you know, is part of everyday life now? Yeah, so like, I didn't, don't think I was really that aware of it. I just found it inherently cool, and the, there were so many things you could do with it, even back then, right? There were so many interesting applications of the technology. You know, people were using them for Excel spreadsheets and business, and I started, the first thing I did when I got a, my hands on a, a Commodore PET machine was to write right. games on it, because I like games. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think I had, I'm not a visionary in terms of, oh, I, I can see where this is going, but I just... You I, can lie. You no, can. <laughs> no, I can't lie, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I, I always thought that you know, there's so much more you can do. Every time I kind of went deeper in a particular area, there's so many more things I could find to do with the technology to apply it. Um, so yeah. If we and then if we go so late nineties, was yep. that was that when you f when you founded your first business? Yeah. So um, Silicon Valley, uh, there was a really crazy Swiss guy who had been building his game tools. I was in Japan at the time. I ended up sending him code saying, "Well, you should do it this way. You should do it this way." Mm. Um, my wife wanted to move to California. We moved to California. Um, and obviously Silicon Valley in the 90s was just, just dot-com like crazy, and so we set up a company in San Jose, um, and we, just the two of us there, um, working all day, all night, writing code, trying our best to do marketing, failed miserably. <laughs> um, but really, it was a very cool time to be in Silicon Valley, and it was a great experience just living in that culture at the time. So you, did it start out or did it evolve into a B2B thing where you were supplying tools to other developers? Yeah, so it was always, always B2B. I think the change that we made, initially it was that the business model was this. We'll basically let anybody license it for a very nominal fee. Mm. Um, and if you build a game and sell it, we'll take royalties off of that. Um, very quickly learned that supporting hundreds of companies who are using our technology basically for free was not very sustainable. So we flipped on its head um, and then we made the price much, much, much higher, you know, hundreds mm. of thousands of dollars license. So less customers, more focus. Um, and yeah, we, it was used primarily in PCs and Macs. Um, we ported it to all sorts of things, Java, um, Linux, pretty much everything you could run on at the time. Did that shift in the in the business model? Did that shift? like there are still companies using that model, like Unreal Engine, for yeah. instance, you know, where it is free to use, and then you take a portion. I mean, do you, do you, did well, that I think Unreal is a little different because they started from a, a point of they built it for their own internal use initially, mm -hmm. um, and then they licensed it later on, and their initial licensing fees were quite high. Yeah. But as they've gained, gained success, they've been able to kind of change their licensing model back to the other way just to gain market share. So what did that mean for you to, to make that shift in terms of that model? Like, did you notice this really profound yeah. change? Yeah, in terms of that people started taking us seriously. <laughs> it was quite strange. And we got a lot more interest both from potential customers as well as potential investors. Mm. Um, and even though it was just two of us, um, you know, what we had built back then was something akin, akin to the Unity engine today, basically. It was 97. Wow. Um, so you know, we, I think we were headed in the right direction very clueless about sales and marketing and running a business, but it was kind of cool. When you, you're talking about people taking you seriously, like how did people respond to a crazy Swiss, Swiss guy and a, and a guy from New and a Kiwi? Um, I, I guess you're in Silicon Valley, everyone, there are so many times we go to pitch meetings and pitch what we're doing and looking for investment. Um, you just got more questions, more callbacks, more genuine interest in what we're doing. Mm. Um, and I think wasn't that odd to be crazy people in Silicon Valley doing crazy stuff back then either, so it was pretty much the norm.
Mm. And again, like I'll, I'll talk about, you know, kind of what you saw at the time, yeah. but like some of the stuff that was happening then, again, formed the foundation for things that have shaped our life. Did you, did you get a sense that that was happening around you in Silicon Valley? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, the, the internet was already a thing. Um, mm. Broadband, and well, not really broadband, DSL was becoming a thing. Online presence was becoming much more of a thing then, so definitely there was a huge opportunity at that point for people who saw the writing on the wall to really take advantage of that, right? So you had web browsers, or they were pretty primitive. Um, you had online connectivity. There were a lot of kind of message boards and other things happening. Yeah. So I think that's kind of around the time when uh, Netscape was really, really becoming a big thing. Um, Microsoft was struggling with, uh, you know, becoming a network or, or internet-oriented company. Mm. And the Google guys would have been setting up in a garage somewhere? Uh, probably around then, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. When you... Um, so when you come back, when you come back here again, we're talking about the difference in New Zealand. But you look at something like Plexure. Can you explain what that does? And yeah, because it's, it's it is going crazy. Go yeah. So um, uh, so when I came back, my plan was to retire in New Zealand in the Bay of Plenty and live at the beach. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I was given the chance to have a look at Plexure and see what they're doing. So Plexure is a mobile marketing company. We work with a number of global brands. The biggest one being McDonald's, and we provide all the back-end and services for them to do personalized marketing to their consumers through push messages, offers, um, we do loyalty with them and other things. And But I think um, one of the key points about Plexure is that you know, we're mobile first. There's a lot of companies that do cross-platform marketing or broader marketing, but mm. I think our strategy mobile first is really cool because in many parts of the world, mobile devices rule. Nobody really does web browsing on a PC anymore. And so. Mm. Um, yeah, when I looked at the company, I think uh, back in January when I was talking to them, probably had 190 million users on the platform. It's now 210, 220. Wow. Um, so for a company in New Zealand to have that scale of platform and customers and consumers, I was quite blown away. Hmm. What is it? What is it? Do you think? Because this is something that's come up a little bit today, and even Rob Vickery was talking about it before in terms of like thinking globally. Yeah. Is there something? Is there something that you sense within the DNA or the culture of of Plexure? Yeah. Well, I think um, I, I totally agree with what Rob said about being global, right? I think uh, Plexure, you know, the first really big customer was I think McDonald's in the Netherlands, right? So a New Zealand company <laughs> is selling to McDonald's in the Netherlands. Doesn't seem to be. Uh, a natural fit, but you know, I think New Zealand is a really small market, and I sometimes wonder how any company can survive here in the local market. But I think mm. anytime you're doing a business, it doesn't really matter what area you're in. You have to be thinking globally in terms of global reach for for selling to the, the global market. I know I've been bagging Zoom a little bit today, but does the world feel a little bit smaller now for New Zealand companies? Because a lot of meetings are done, a lot of pitch things are yeah. done even on Zoom. Like, does it feel like it's more possible now for us to I, take? I think that? so. I think you know. Um, it's a great opportunity, I think, for companies to think more globally about how they operate. Um, there have been companies in the past, like I mentioned Unity earlier, when I was at Microsoft, we were looking at doing an investment in them, and they were already a distributed company. They never really mm. had um, a single central office. It was always globally distributed um, development work. And I think between the tools that you have from a development perspective, the communications through Zoom and other things, um, you know, cloud-based um, deployments, it doesn't really matter where you are in the globe, and so that does give you a lot more flexibility. Mm. Yeah, if we go back to Plexure for a moment, yeah. and it, it seems so natural on the face of it, like it's really about these personal kind of connections, yeah. what the hell does that mean in the back end and, and what the engineering guys are uh, doing? Yeah, um, so, you know, 200 and something million registered users, over 100 million active mm. users, uh, three quarters of a billion push notifications a month. 
uh, nine billion-ish API calls. So you, you know, it's it's a very large operational platform, um, running twenty-four-seven in the cloud uh, around the globe. And mm. so you know, we both have to maintain that for our current customers, uh, be able to add features to it, and then at the same time, you, you need to be able to continually re-engineering, re-engineer the product to make it more efficient, more scalable, cheaper to run. I'm just thinking, like you know, the cloud. It sounds cool, but it's not really just stuff floating around in the cloud like we need Believe physical. Me, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, but you know what Rob was talking about in terms of maybe the potential down the track to use the space that's mm -hmm. freed up from car parks and that yeah. kind of thing. And people have spoken about you know, the potential of small server farms. Uh, do, you see, do you see the need for that as we start scaling? I, I think that uh, more server farms are going to be the norm rather than less, right? I, you know, yes, it's the cloud, but basically it's a data center or three data centers close together in some location. Um, and, and as those, those data centers have finite, finite resources, electricity, amount of stuff you can get in there, the amount of compute. So as we move more and more stuff to the cloud, as there's more need for more data processing, then mm -hmm. having space to deploy these things is going to be more important. You know, I think uh, Microsoft New Zealand is going to stand up their first data center in New Zealand shortly, uh, first mm -hmm. uh, Azure region in New Zealand shortly. And so I think that's kind of uh, the direction that the world is going, more data centers, more globally distributed. As well as data centers this year, we've been, um, we've been talking about talent as well. What's our talent density like here? Do we have? Yeah, um, super interesting question, actually. I think um, one of the things that's changed a lot since I left New Zealand is a lot more schools in New Zealand bringing in overseas students hmm. to educate them. So I think we have a really great, diverse, talented technical workforce, um, but there are never enough people. Uh, hmm. And so the being, having the right uh, immigration controls in place to be able to bring people in from overseas, I think, is super important. Um, I think another huge challenge for New Zealand, and it's something I experienced when I came back, um, Auckland's really expensive. Mm. Salaries in New Zealand are half to a third of what you get paid by a big US tech yeah. company. Um, so I think there's a real challenge there. I honestly don't have a great answer apart from there is a different lifestyle choice in coming to New Zealand and living in New Zealand that's, that's quite appealing to many people. Mm. Yeah, it can be quite insane. Like Silicon Valley yeah. is known for having quite extreme house prices, yep. but Auckland. not not too bad. When yeah, yeah. As I you know come back a year ago and I start looking for a house in Auckland, I just like, oh my god, I can't afford to buy half the house I had in the states. Mm. Do, you, do you sometimes, just in terms of you coming back to New Zealand, do you sometimes think that there was a little bit of fate involved? Like you come back just at the moment when things start imploding okay. around the world. Yeah, it's all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, this is a longer process, decision-making process to come back, honestly. Mm. It, the timing just worked out, particularly from a COVID perspective, um, honestly. It's, it's great to be able to be back in New Zealand. Um, I have friends in the States who've been working from home since March. Wow. They can't go to a bar or they can't go to a sports game, so super mm. happy to be here. Now, I want to tap into a little bit of um, business advice as well. Um, so you would have been around a lot of a lot of different structures and different cultures, yep. I guess. Um, can, you, can you talk about some of the, maybe, maybe just a few kind of key bullet points or key learnings that you took away from Microsoft and from Nike? Microsoft and, and Nike. Um, ooh, I think that, uh, and not, not just Nike, Microsoft and Nike, one of the roles that I had at uh, Microsoft, I work with game developers around the globe, right? Mm. Um, ooh, business stuff. Uh, you know, from a technology perspective, I think that you know, enabling your giving your teams the autonomy that they need to be able to do the work they need to get done to deliver features to your consumers really quickly is super important, right? Mm. So not a lot of control and oversight from a 
corporate function level, but you know, giving them the tools to enable them to build their software, test their software, deploy it easily, and move on is super important in terms of being agile in today's workplace. Mm. And so just you know, hiring great people, forming really nice units that can uh, operate autonomous, autonomously, and then letting them go and get their, their work yeah. done is super important. Yeah, with that autonomy, though, there comes a certain amount of trust and yep. investment, right? And again, we were talk- talking to Mark about like that willingness to invest in R&D and yep. those features. Is that something that we need to do better here, do you think? Yeah, I absolutely agree. So I agree that's definitely the case. I think you know, one of the reasons, again, that Plexure was exciting to me is that the company is, you know, has been on a roll in terms of um, revenue and sales, but now they're plowing all that back into mm. R&D to improve both the offerings that we have for our customers as well as modernising the platform. And I think that that's something that... Um, Technology is not standing still. You've got to be doing R&D continually. As your customer base grows, you've got to react to what you've built to, m- to meet the need of the new customers. So it's not something you can skimp on. Mm-hmm. I think, I can't remember the exact numbers, but most large US-based technology companies, the large proportion of their spenders in R&D. Mm. Just, again, just talking generally, but where do you see the opportunities in New Zealand across the sectors, across yeah. the industries? It's really hard because everyone else has been saying this already. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of agree with Rob. Um, definitely anything with machine learning, I think, is quite interesting. And there's so many different avenues that haven't been explored yet. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to recommend space travel just yet. No, he's gone. No, he was talking about the exploitation of Oh, the exploitation of space, of space yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, the, the obvious one is agri, agricultural in New Zealand. I think that's great too. But I think, you know, something you and I talked about a little bit, you know, there is vast quantities of sensor data, of mm. public data, of other things you can do mashups with to create interesting insights that you could build companies around. Mm. Um, and I think that, again, with the cloud there to enable you to build stuff and experiment at very low cost, there's a huge opportunity there. Um, uh, one thing I will say, I've never seen a AAA game developer in New Zealand, and it's, it makes me sad. Mm. We have really fantastic movie production here. We had great technology companies come out of New Zealand doing technology for game companies. Um, I work with another Kiwi at Microsoft on the graphics driver for the Dreamcast. Uh, Chris Butcher, who was the youngest graduate from Canterbury in computer science, I think, was at Bungie. So we're exporting all these great Kiwi minds for game development. And um, I'd like to see some game developers establish themselves here, Hmm. AAA game developers. But um, you got the guys from DayZ. Right, who are doing some cool things. So they're surely setting some precedent. Yeah. And, and this might be slightly geeking out a little bit with the game stuff, but do you see that there's going to be, like you're talking about the film and the storytelling yeah. side that we bring, but there is that, there's this kind of intersection happening, like the, the likes of Last of Us, for instance, which is a really cinematic kind yeah, of game. Yeah, people have tried, I think, cinematic games for years. I think definitely for a, some genres it works incredibly well. Um, but there are, you know, that people love shooting games and they love flying games, like car racing games. So I think there's definitely there are definitely uh, cinematic style games that are incredibly engaging and fun to play. Uh, but that's just one of many genres that you can do. Brilliant. All right. Um, I think that's that's well, well. One more thing, actually. One more thing. But uh, you know, we were talking to Lewis about the uh, the tall poppy thing. Yeah. Do you notice that? Do you notice it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I will say I've seen a couple really oddly terrifying examples of it um, since I've been back. Um, just uh, yeah, I, a friend's 
received a note in the mail because his son got a BMW and somebody in the neighbourhood thought it was uncool to have a BMW in the neighbourhood. Wow. In a way that was completely insane to me. Um, what neighbourhood was it, by the way? <laughs> I'm not going to say. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Um, yeah, Rob mentioned, right, I think the UK definitely has a similar kind of thing going, but in New Zealand it seems to be a little bit more extreme. Hmm. Um, in Silicon Valley, obviously, no tall poppy because everybody hmm. there is scrambling to get ahead and be the best and the greatest. Uh, yeah, so it is, it's a little uh, disturbing. How do you think, how do we start breaking Break free of that? Yeah, um, hmm, tough question. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think Rob mentioned kind of being comfortable with failure. I think, you know, really... Um, feeling good about success, right, mm. just generally, whether it's small things or big things, just feeling less worried about what the other person has and just celebrating your own successes might be a good first start. Mm. Well, you look at someone like yourself, right, who's done kick-ass stuff. Do you feel like... No. <laughs> I, I suffer really badly from imposter syndrome, so I sometimes wonder what I'm doing here. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, on that note, thank you very much, and we do celebrate your success, yeah. so thank you very much, and welcome home, right. Thank you very much. Way. Thank you.